This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book and it is number 13 of a series of studies in the epistle to the Colossians. We are now dealing with the great section which distinguishes Colossians from Ephesians, devotes so much space to the word of warning starting from Colossians 2 verse 4 until the end of the chapter. We were looking last time at the first specific warning, verse 8, beware. Beware lest any man spoil you, make a prey of you, capture you, lead you off as a defeated foe, through philosophy and vain deceit. Let's put that way round to emphasise the vainness, the vanity and the deceit. It's through a vain deceitful philosophy. Now, it's not possible in meetings of this character for us to spend a tremendous time giving a survey of ancient philosophy for two reasons. One of the best reasons is I couldn't do it if you asked me. Not very effectively. I have attempted it on the surface and so, for the benefit of those who are not here at this meeting in the chapel, who may not be so acquainted with our literature, I'm going to just read the contents that are printed at the back of a booklet called Wisdom, Human and Divine, and then leave it. If uh, there's anything there that stimulates your interest, you will immediately discover that the whole book, cost two shillings post-free, can be obtained in the ordinary way. Uh, I have no hesitation in uh, advertising a book, because the written page, the printed page, the tape recording and the spoken word is all one and the same, only using different methods. So this little booklet has this as its contents. The personal Christ, the end of all philosophy. That's true philosophy. The work of the law written on the heart as exhibited in the writings of two philosophers. Now that's outside the testimony of scripture. Some who knew not God as far as we know, yet manifest in their writings that God had not quite left himself without witness as we read. And then some extracts from the writings of Seneca the Roman tutor of Nero. The link between Malachi and Matthew and the failure of human wisdom. Then we start at the beginning of what we call Greek philosophy. The search for the first principle and its result. The result was what instead of who. That's the difference between Greek philosophy and the Bible. Greek philosophy says, what is the answer? And the Bible says, who is the answer? We see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Oh, what a difference. Then we have Anaximander loses his way and finds only an eternal something. Poor man. He'd beat us hollow with regard to his ability to argue. But he found an eternal something. Anaximander, his conception of the first principle, approaches the scriptural spirit, but fails to reach it. The formless being of Xenophanes and the scriptural revelation of him who was in the form of God contrasted. See how they're approaching it. The condescension of the great I am, Moses and Parmenides. A world of change without him who changes not. The philosophy of Heraclitus. He saw that everything was changing. He said you couldn't step into the same river twice. 
invented. Empedocles and the need of a mediator. Chance or intelligence, the final phase, Democritus and Anaxagoras. Then we have a little reference to the sophists. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Socrates and moral philosophy, a splendid building, but without sufficient foundation. The successes of Socrates and their failure. Plato, the idealist. Aristotle, the realist. And the philosophers of the New Testament times, Stoicism, the philosophy of pride. Epicureanism, the philosophy of pleasure. Skepticism, the philosophy of indifference. And although the person would look at you and say, me a philosopher, when somebody returns the answer to your endeavour to lead them to the truth, he says, so what? That's the final word of philosophy, the sophists. And one of them stood in the presence of the Saviour. And when the Saviour said something about truth, he said, what is truth? See, that's where they got Surely to survey, just like that, the result of the cream of human wisdom is tragedy, isn't it? Shouldn't we be glad to think that we haven't been left to our own resources, but that the Son of God has come and given us an understanding and we know him that is true and we are in him that is true, even Jesus Christ, this is the true God in eternal life. Think of those words. So we leave it and ask you, to remember that that book is available if it can give you any satisfaction in reading about the wisdom of this world that ultimately comes to naught in contrast to the wisdom which comes from above. Well now that means to say instead of dwelling on verse 8 any further we come to the next stage. You see that the word vain in the Greek is the word empty and in contrast to that which is empty in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. What fools we should be if the fullness is waiting for us in the person of Christ and we follow that which God says is empty. And ye are filled to the full, the word is complete, ye are filled to the full in him, which is the head of all principality and power. We are directed, again, when we get these warnings, to the corrective. You see on this chart, there's uh, the plausible speech, philosophy, the traditions of men, the rudiments of the world, and then the corrective, not after Christ. We'll feel to the full in him. And you go down and you'll find there's a corrective each time. And in most of the cases, the corrective is, Christ fills that bill. One answer all the time. So it's summed up in Colossians 3, we belong to a company where Christ is all and in all. It's easy to say it and it takes half a lifetime to discover it and the rest of your lifetime to make it known. And then when you've got so far as that, you realise how true it is. Behold, it was never made known at all. It's only just on the fringe. Well, now we'll take our next step. We won't attempt to go into these ramifications. We'll draw attention to them in the large. The next section is verse 11 onwards. Uh, 11 and 12, where we have the body of flesh, the energy of God, made without hands, and then in whom circumcision and baptism, with the corrective, 
He's the head of principality and power, and you are dead and buried with him. If you look down to the letter B on this chart, we have the body of the flesh, and we have the mind of the flesh. We have the energy of God, we have the increase of God. And instead of made without hands, and so on, we have the voluntary humility, and vainly puffed up. And in whom we have that, and out of whom we receive that. I leave that to speak for itself as you're watching it and we go uh, down this little bit uh, further in chapter 2. <coughs> now, first of all, in whom also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Circumcision is a difficult subject to deal with, but it ramifies through scripture and it has a, a purpose and a meaning, strange though it may be. And one of the reasons, one of the um, meanings is found by getting a correct rendering of verse 11. Our version says, in the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now the word of the sins goes out. If you're reading the revised text, you'll find it's not there. He's not dealing with sins. He's dealing with flesh. Now our sins are forgiven. But you can't forgive our flesh that's there. And it's there till the day of doom. And you're warned as you come later on as we've read in Romans 6 about the old man. And you're told uh, at the sequel in Colossians 3 when he says about putting on the old man. Putting off the old man and putting on the new uh, verse 9 and 10 of Colossians 3, Lie not one to another, seeing ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge, after the image of him that created him. So, while we are blessedly free from condemnation, the same apostle who says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, said, Oh, should deliver me from the body of this flesh when I would do good evil is present with me. You see, we are not quite home yet. We are halfway, blessed be God. But we mustn't take advantages, otherwise it will take advantage of us. We are not yet, as the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians, not as though I were already perfect. The man who is going to trip and fail most is the man who thinks he is. I've told you before of the, I don't know if it's apocryphal story of the days of Spurgeon. When you become a popular figure like Spurgeon, he's supposed to have said a lot of things that most likely he didn't say. But somebody once went into his study and told him he belonged to a company of God's people who believed a certain doctrine and he said, this man said, I haven't committed sin for seven years. That's sinless perfection. Well, it's something to aim at, friends. But to say that it's true of you may mean that you're rather short-sighted. He said, I haven't committed sin for seven years. So Spurgeon is supposed to pick up a half a glass of water that was on his table and threw it in the man's face. And when the man spluttered and said, he said, oh, he said, I thought so. The old man was only asleep. He wasn't dead. And half a glass of water woke him up again. Well, now, whether that's true or not, it doesn't matter, you see? That's what happens. The old man is not dead. He's rendered inoperative. Sin need not have dominion over you, but it might do, if you let it. Otherwise, you see, there would be no need for a long chapter of warnings, would there, in Colossians, if it was utterly impossible for you to be beguiled or led astray. He wouldn't spend all that time saying an unnecessary thing. It's evidently most necessary. 
In Ephesians, he does it quickly. In Philippians, again, he says, Watch those who walk, so as you have asked for an example. For I tell you, weeping, they're the enemies of the cross of Christ. That's telling a church like Philippi not to follow the example of those who were enemies of the cross of Christ. But they weren't committing what we would call external obvious sins, whose God is their belly. Who mind earthly things? My, I've met any amount of God's people who may have come out of that eddy, you see. And you will find here there's no gross immorality. There's no obvious what we might call sinful living. In fact, when you look at the end, you might, you might say to yourself, well, neglecting of the body, says one of the things to put away. Instead of, instead of saying that these people were gross in their living, they were aesthetics. They were neglecting themselves. They were the people who wore hair shirts in the Middle Ages and flogged themselves every morning. And what's it done? Only pampered the poor old flesh and made them more proud of their humility than ever. It's not an easy pathway, is it, friends? And it's not right for us to say it's a bed of roses the moment you believe Christ, for you wouldn't be speaking the truth. Well, now then, we come back to verse 11. In whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, so you know you're only dealing with the spiritual meaning of circumcision, in the putting off or the repudiating of the flesh, the body of the flesh. No sin mentioned. It's the flesh itself. The Apostle speaks about the body of this death in Romans, the fifth chapter. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He speaks about the carnal mind, the fleshly mind, as well as the body. And so these things are in view. One reference to circumcision which we ought to include is Philippians chapter 3, because it practically puts in a nutshell what he intends it to mean. I'll read the first three verses of Philippians 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. The word safe, asphaltese, means giving a good grip for your feet when you're running a race. And I have a feeling, I believe, that our word asphalt is derived from this fact that they use that for the race course. Beware of dogs, Beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. That's the way he spoke of the ordinary Jew then. For we are the circumcision which worship God in spirit. Now that's the meaning. Which worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. So he's touching the flesh. Not what you might call sin or immorality, or vice, but the religious elements coming in. The ceremonies, the uh, touch not, taste not, handle not, prohibitions, which all are to perish with the using. Don't you see? This is an aspect of truth that is not unsounded. You may have a congregation of God's people and not one of them would be guilty of gross sin, but they may be in need of this chapter because they're as stiff as starch in their humility and the angels of God are grieving to see them without their realisation that while sin may have been forgiven, the flesh is still there very obviously, even in connection with their religion. So we'll look a bit closer. 
immediately follows the word, verse 11, buried with him in baptism. Now it doesn't seem to me to be an indication of logic to say we quite agree that circumcision is only the spiritual equivalent. I don't think anybody takes it otherwise than that. But the moment we see the word baptism, it must mean the literal ordinance. Because they are both joined together. Buried with him in baptism. Now for a moment, there are two aspects of baptism that we need to distinguish. Will you turn to Hebrews chapter 9? Writing to those who knew the Old Testament and its ceremonies, he said this. After the first few verses, down to verse 7, giving a little resume of the furniture of the tabernacle and an indication of its typical character, he says in verse 8, the Holy Ghost, this signifying, and that's a most important little word, here the Apostle doesn't say that this tabernacle was erected by the ingenuity of man. It was the Holy Ghost signifying something. The types of the tabernacle are endorsed by God here. That the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was standing, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings. That's the word baptism. In the tabernacle service, there were washings. And so we have a baptism which has to do with washing. When you look at the Acts of the Apostles, the 8th chapter, uh, the second chapter, sorry. The second chapter and uh, verse, I think it's verse 38. Yes. It says in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you for the remission for in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So their baptism was for, or unto, the remission of sins. And later on you will read that Ananias said to Paul, the Apostle Paul, Arise, be baptized, and wash away your sins. So there's a baptism in the Scriptures which has to do with cleansing from sin. But there's another baptism in, in the Old Testament in its type, which has nothing whatever to do with the cleansing of sin, but which has to do with uniting the believer with his Lord. Now, in the Old Testament, Moses was the representative of God, and the people of Israel were baptized into Moses. You know where that comes, don't you? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, but let's see it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and so on. But the uh, statement which we ought to confirm in Exodus 15 is one of many which assures us 
that not a spot of water touched those Israelites who were baptized at the Red Sea. You notice in Exodus 15, verse 22. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shua, and went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Uh, wait a minute, have I read the wrong, yes, I'm reading the wrong beast. Uh, the passage I'm looking for, but you know full well, is that they walked through the sea as men walk on dry land. And if you will look up the references in the Psalms, you'll find that is repeated more than once. That they walked through the Red Sea as men walk on dry land. Now therefore, you've got to remember, there are two aspects of baptism and not one. It's not wise for us to insist upon the washing and the sprinkling that went on in the tabernacle service and forget the other one which, after which our attention is drawn by the Apostle that there was an initial baptism which never washed away sin. These people who went through the Red Sea, they lapsed into idolatry on the other side when, or just uh, at that time, Aaron was making a golden calf and whatnot. Oh, they had a lot to learn before they were, in any measure, a picture of the saint of God. But they were one. They were baptized into Moses. Well, now he says, you have been baptized into Christ. But whether that was accomplished by an ordinance, by dipping you in water, is another question. In most cases, unless it's a very extreme ritualist, if you said to anybody who believed water baptism, if you said to them, now, do you believe that the water itself has got a virtue in it? They'd say, oh no. Oh no, it's not different water from any other water. We don't call it holy water. We don't do that. So that when a person says he doesn't believe in baptism or he does believe in baptism, it doesn't necessarily follow that he's referring to water at all. It's the real thing. Well, then there's another way in which we may approach this best question. Our Saviour was baptised by John the Baptist and we're told definitely the reason why. In the Gospel according to John, shall we have chapter and verse for it, the, the uh, Gospel according to John tells us that our Saviour was baptised in answer to a desire on the part of John the Baptist to have an assurance that the one whom they were expecting was the true Messiah. It says in John 1 verse 32, And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not. But he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Unto whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending, then remaining on him, the same is he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. So the baptism of Christ at the banks of the Jordan was not done. As you can hear people exhorted to follow Christ, in the waters of baptism. And they tell you to do what Christ did. Well, you can't do that. He was singular. There was nothing like the idea of following him there. There was no example to us in that sense. Well, then there's another statement with regard to baptism. After that baptism was endured and finished, our Saviour said to his disciples, I think it is in Matthew, the uh, somewhere around about the 22nd chapter, Uh, what happened was that the 
mother of Zebedee's children, were very concerned about her two sons, and so she came to the Lord and made a request, and she said, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on my right hand and the other on thy left, in thy kingdom. She wasn't asking much, was she? The two of them are going to be there, but still there was a mother and her sons. But Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? What baptism was that? He'd already been baptized in water. What baptism was in front of him now? Well, the Old Testament says, in the language of prophecy, All thy waves and thy billows have gone over me. He was baptized at the, in the death of the cross, and that's where we come in. Whether you're baptized in water, whether you've been sprinkled or immersed, is not the question. You may have been through all that, and never know this. I, I wouldn't argue with anybody if a person said, I feel old to be baptized in water. I said, oh, that's all right, it makes no odds. But be sure of this baptism. This baptism which by faith unites you to Christ your head as the baptism of the Red, Red Sea united those slaves who were now redeemed out of Egypt by the Passover to their head, Moses, who was a picture of him that was to come. So the vital thing in all this is not the ceremony itself, but the object. And this is to unite the believer in the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. Well, now he says, there it is. You have gone through the spiritual equivalent of circumcision in repudiating the body of the flesh. You have been buried with him in baptism. Buried. But you're risen. Now we read Romans the sixth chapter and it insisted that if we can reckon ourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, we shall reckon ourselves to be alive unto God. You don't stop there. God doesn't want you to stop there. He says you've been buried, but you live. If we turn the page in Colossians, he's on the same subject. He says in Colossians 3, um, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hid. You died, but you live. Or coming into chapter 2, he says in verse 20, Wherefore if ye be dead with Christ, from the rudiments of the world, why are no living in the world? This is to be a reality to us. We are so united with the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ that it becomes the very power whereby we are able to rise and walk in newness of life and serve in newness of spirit. But there's always been that temptation and tendency to have something to lean upon, something visible, which is, of course, human nature. But ultimately, we get it summed up for us in uh, verse 16. Let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect of a holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days. Even the Sabbath is included, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. We've got the body, the reality. Why chase after shadows? So Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians 10 and said all our fathers were baptized into Moses, wrote in Corinthians 1, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Oh, it is, said, I've been baptized so and so, I baptized so and so, I don't quite remember. But he could never have been sent like Peter was to preach 
baptism for the remission of sins. So Paul had a distinctive ministry. And whatever Peter said, he said to those who were entrusted to his care. And what Paul says, he says to you and to me. So the one essential thing is that we should realise that in the purpose of God, we reckon ourselves to have died with Christ, to be raised with him, to be seated with him, and to walk in harmony with that new calling and that new strength. Now we come just a, a shade nearer. Um, buried with him in baptism, wherein also arisen with him through the faith of the operation of God who raised him from the dead. That's the means. You believe God raised him from the dead? Yes. Well, when he was raised from the dead, he was the first fruits of them that sleep. And the first fruits is the pledge of the harvest. That's the way it's used in the Bible. You go through your field of corn, you pluck a few ears that are prematurely ripened, and you wave those before God in the temple because you know that those few ears are the first fruits of the whole harvest that to be gathered. If Christ is raised as your representative head, you are raised together in him potentially. And so it says, and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, there's the two now, or perhaps that ought to be rendered being dead to the sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. And now here comes the complete elimination of all these other things that can come in between you and your relationship with Christ. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. There's the figure of nailing it to the counter, nailing it to the doorpost. And I think it was a, it was a custom in the East that when a person had paid all his bills, he put a nail through them on his doorpost so the rest of the village should see. Not a bad idea, was it? And that's what the Lord has done for us. And principalities and powers are brought into this, you notice. Uh, he suddenly jumps from, you are complete in him, to say that Christ is the head over all principality and power, in verse 10. And again, you notice, having spoiled principalities and powers, uh, what's that got to do with it? What's principalities and powers got to do with being baptised or what not? Well, it only shows you we don't quite know, do we? That's the first step to understand, isn't it? Principalities and powers are learning by the church. The manifold wisdom of God, says Ephesians. We don't know much about that, do we? But suppose we go a step down and look at somebody on a lower platform. Perhaps we may get a little hint in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord? Now what does he mean by the word spoken by angels? Well, it's evidently a law, because it speaks about transgression, disobedience, and a recompense. Now you know that on two occasions in the New Testament we are told, once in Stephen's speech, and once in the third chapter of the Galatians, that the law at Mount Sinai was given by the mediation of angels. Angels. And all the way through Hebrews' history, the Old Testament, there is angelic ministry. 
So it looks as though angels had something to do with the administration of the law of Mount Sinai and its observances. Now he says, you belong to another calling. Angels haven't anything to do with you. You are associated with principalities and powers, and they are also some of them. You see, we have principalities and powers which are on the side of the Lord, and unfortunately for us, for the moment, there are principalities and powers that are antagonistic. So this is what happened. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Made a show of them openly. Let's go back to Ephesians 4 and see if we can gather a bit there. Uh, wherefore, verse 8, Wherefore he says, When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now the word to lead captivity means to lead at the point of a spear. So they were a spoil. They were a foe that were being defeated. Now we can't stop there. We must compare the words which the Holy Ghost uses, comparing spiritual with spiritual. And that's a quotation from Psalm 68. I wonder if it says anything about Mount Sinai there. And of course, those of you who know something about my method of teaching, you say, oh, sure it does. He wouldn't say that, would he? Well, never mind. You have a look. Psalm 68. Verse 17. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. The Lord is among them, as at Sinai, in the holy place. Thou hast ascended on high, thou hast led captivity captive, Thou hast received gifts from men. There's the very passage. Well, that shows you, without ex explaining it fully, that some of the principalities and powers that belong to the fallen angels and section were attacking and putting into bondage this church of the one body, just as other angels had been inimical, sometimes some of them, to the people of Israel. I don't understand it fully. I wouldn't, I wouldn't pretend to, but I'm pointing out a few obvious finger posts, as it were, in the scriptures that may help us. Well, now he said, you see, all those things are finished. Let no man therefore judge you. They're shadows. So in verse 18, let no man beguile you of your reward. He is back again. Verse 8 says, beware lest any man spoil you. Let no man beguile you of your reward. And as I've drawn attention before, this is a hark back to Philippians 3. In Philippians 3, we have the prize of the high calling of God. And the Greek word for the word prize is the word brabion. The root of the word is B-R-A-B. Now, the word for beguile you of reward is katabrabuo. Now, you not, may not know a single word about Greek, but you say, ah, I see. Kata means down or against. And brab, whatever that means, is this prize. Yes, yes. Satan is not wasting his time in trying to seek your life, friends. That's a waste of his time. You remember the story of Job? Satan was given permission to touch Job's body, to touch his home, to touch his loved ones, to touch his possessions, but not his life. That's true to this very day. Satan is not attacking your life. That's wasting his time. But he'll do his utmost to rob you of your reward. And by so doing, you'll rob the Saviour 
of his meat too. So we are linked together. If you and I fail, in a measure he'll be sad, won't he? Have you never experienced or seen or known that when a child has come home from school for the first time with a prize, the whole family's got a prize? Mother's got a prize, father's got a prize, because the youngster's got a prize. Well, is that, am I wrong in saying that is what's going to happen? Oh, if I can go in the presence of my Lord with the smallest little prize, won't it be good for him? Won't it be fine to think that it's done, not merely for myself, but for his sake? So here, let no man cheat you, no man spoil you, no man beguile you of your reward. Now how can that be? Oh, can make you one of those Pecksniff sort of cringing subjects who mistake a mere cringing false humility for the real thing. Stand up, says the Lord, to some of his people. On one occasion, one of his people went down on his knees and flat on the floor and the Lord said, Stand up, I want to speak to you. God doesn't want us to cringe. We need to be, uh, in our worship, we need to remember in the presence of majesty that he has made us his sons. And he wants us to walk worthy of it. So he says here, let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and the worshipping of angels. Now it may mean that these people were actually worshipping angels. When you read some of the things they did in the early church at the beginning, you can believe almost anything. And it's still going on today, only perhaps not worshipping angels, they worship dead saints who are now supposed to be mediated between God and men. But there's another meaning which may also be kept in mind. A voluntary humility adopts the worshipping attitude of angels. Now I don't. You say, what do you mean? Well, when I read that the most holy beings in heaven, the seraphim, do you know what they do? In the presence of God, they veil their face. Well, you say, what about you? I read in my book that we all with unveiled face Beholding the glory of the Lord are transfigured. I'm in a position before the throne of God that is more wonderful than anything that the seraphim and the cherubim ever knew. For I'm redeemed and made one with Christ and they are creatures that are standing outside. That's temerity, isn't it, if it isn't true? But supposing it's true, am I going to adopt the attitude of worshipping angels needing their mediation? Or am I going cringing into the presence of God like a, a dog? You know, there's one terrible uh, etymological blunder made about the word worship. It looks on the surface as though it includes the word for a dog. And to crawl on your belly in the presence of God is worship. Oh, no. There's another root for that. And the same two letters can also be the word kiss. And that comes in the worship. When you kiss in the Old Testament, you acknowledge. Like uh, it was said about Joseph, upon all thy words shall every Egyptian kiss. That means I acknowledge his supremacy. So I'm thankful I haven't got to crawl on my belly in the presence of the Lord to worship him. He says, stand up like a man. And the only reference to worship, the only reference to worship in Paul's prison ministry is found in Philippians 3, when he says, we worship God in spirit, and it's not our English word worship at all. It's the very word used in the other chapter that you know how Timothy has served like a son with a father. That's how I serve my God. That's how I worship him. I stand up in his presence. 
I don't cringe. I'm a child of God. I walk with him. And I'm sure that's the worship which is acceptable now. Or, of course, it can lead to presumption. It can lead to neglect, like every good thing can be. But that's a part of the witness here, friends. We are in Christ. And we can be deluded away by practicing all sorts of odds and ends to make it secure. So let's come a bit further down. In contrast to this worshipping attitude of angels, or would you notice you can be vainly puffed up by your fleshly mind at the same time you do this, and not holding the head, from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increases with the increase of God. Wherefore, here's his conclusion. If ye died with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? And what do you mean by those? All such things like this. Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men. Chasing you around what you're not to do, where you're not to go. Oh, he says, they're trivial in relation to the fact that all my life can be modulated and guided by the one glorious fact. I died with him, I'm buried with him, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And all the celibate years worked out and completed in that great offering of Christ, and I stand the other side. I am assured that I'm complete in him, which all that are perished with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men. Now he sums it up, which things have indeed a show of wisdom. He was on that idea earlier, you remember, when it says in verse 4, And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. A show of wisdom. Enticing words. Make believe. In will worship and humility. Don't quite know what will worship is except vaguely. Humility is put aside. Why? Because it's the false myth, the humility. It's the Uriah Heap humility. It's the person who's always like this, you know. God doesn't want that. A mock humility. And you can be so humble to be proud of it, and that's a horrible thing. So he says, all that's on one side. And neglecting the body. Neglecting the body. Holiness doesn't ask you to neglect the body. It doesn't tell you to pamper the body. But mere neglecting the body. Going without this and going without that and going without the other for the sake of doing it. Oh, you may be more monstrous a hypocrite than the man who's enjoying himself and having a good time. So, it's all summed up. Not in any honour. Now, the word satisfying, not in any honour, save to the satisfying of the flesh, is almost the same as the word, ye are complete in him, in verse 10. You see? You are complete in him. And the only thing you're doing, if you follow these other things, is to try to be complete in the poor old flesh, which is an abomination of the Lord. Now, I can be very much misunderstood in what I've said, uh, but, of course, that won't be the only time. I, I mustn't boast in that. I should be very sorry if it is. But if you want to read what the Lord has said along these lines in 1 Timothy chapter 4, you'll find that in the last days there's going to be a departure from the truth there's going to be doctrines of demons, but it doesn't say they're going to be wicked. Oh, no. They're going to abstain. And they're going to deny. They're going to practice self-denial. You can do all that, you see, and yet be on the wrong side. What's the answer? Christ. Christ's fullness. Fill to the full in him, and then don't turn aside to one extreme or the other. 
So may the Lord give us grace to recognise that this passage in Colossians has a place for us. It's not been written without intention, but we don't want to dwell on it too long. So next time we meet together, God willing, we turn from the beware to the exhortation of Colossians 3, where we're told to set our affection on things above, for our life is hid with Christ in God.